What is going on, guys? Welcome back to the Pit Limiter Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Buchanan. Joining me this week, we've got members four and five of the Pit Limiter Podcast family. Uh, I'm going to let them introduce themselves. John Poole, the third, and Bobby Krug. What is going on, fellas? Oh, not too much. Um, as Zach said, I'm I'm John Poole, uh, recent college graduate, uh, last May. Graduated with bachelor's in business administration, uh, working currently on my master's degree in business analytics. I've been a long, long-time NASCAR fan, at least the last 15 years, full, full season. Um, also, just in general, a big motorsports fan. Love the facts. Uh, yeah, that's about basically it for me. What about you, Bobby? Yeah, so my name's Bobby Krug. I'm 20 years old, currently going to college at SIUE for mass communications. Uh, video production background. Uh, big fan of racing. I'm a car racer myself. I've been in car racing since 2016. Uh, grew up as a NASCAR fan, most recently became an IndyCar fan as well. And uh, just love the motorsports and uh, and love uh, connecting with guys like you that uh, we all, you know, share that love. So Awesome. That's what it's all about. We had a big weekend in motorsports really big week if you look at it as a whole this past week daytona 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 some loved it some hate it it's one of our favorite segments stop and go bobby krug what do you got for us so yeah obviously at the top of that denny hamlin took home the victory in the daytona 500 it was his second victory in the daytona 500 and Joe Gibbs Racing actually finished one, two, three, which was very emotional for the whole team, especially after the passing of J.D. Gibbs in the offseason. Uh, so, yeah, Denny Hamlin picked up the win, Kyle Busch second, and Eric Jones, an impressive run at the very last part of that race to get the third place. Uh, Fourteen cars were left on that lead lap with a couple red flags there towards the end, but most of the, most of the race was a pretty green flag and uh, pretty clean. Colton Herta continues to impress people, man. Ran his first race last year at Sonoma. Topped the charts in spring training for the NTT IndyCar Series at Circuit of the Americas with a time of 1.15.132. He topped the likes of Alexander Rossi, Will Power, Ryan Hunter Ray, Simon Pagano. This guy, I think, is the real deal. There's some sad news today out of the F1 scene. Fan favorite track Interlagos, which has hosted the Brazilian Grand Prix for many years, is set to fall off the F1 schedule. Uh, this, there's been talks about this for at least the last 10 years. Um, it looks like the Brazilian government is moving forward with a new venue. Looks to be a street circuit uh, in Rio de Janeiro. Bringing it back to NASCAR, um, we are looking at a potential shortening of the schedule for the NASCAR Cup Series, anywhere down to 32 to 28 races. A majority of that has to do with, you know, keeping the viewership interested and also the avoidance of competing with uh, NFL and college football. And you also might start seeing some midweek races, but all that's just kind of in talk right now between drivers and the NASCAR body. Uh, there's some interesting news being reported by Adam Stern. According to an interview with uh, Jim France, Jim France has made it well known that he's tried to rec actively recruit Rick Hendrick uh, to join IMSA 
and the United Sports Car Series, but unfortunately Rick has not joined the series due to uh, being f having his hands full with NASCAR and his dealerships. Final topic on stop and go. The face car is back. Some of, I, really, I think was was a fan favorite for Daytona. The Corey LaJoy Old Spice Go Fast Racing number 32 car that was ran in the Daytona 500 that was all over social media makes a return for the Atlanta Motor Speedway. I think it's 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 hard to miss, fellas. I think it's going to be a good car to look out for. Oh, I'm pretty excited for it. That's going to be fun to see. Oh, yeah. So our first main topic, Formula E, the Mexico City race, it, it did not fail to impress. In case you missed it, last lap pass, Pascal Verline was running out of energy. Lucas Degrassi stole the victory at the line. Just bare, I mean, and you got to remember, these cars are on low energy at the end of the race anyways. They can't go over their specified amount of energy. Verline was at 1% going into the final corners. Degrassi, DaCosta, I mean, all all these leaders are 2 3%, so everybody's very low on, on energy. And, and it's really cool to see a finish like this in Formula E because really for the last couple of years, people haven't really been paying attention to Formula E. Ever since it came on the scene, it wasn't, it wasn't really popular after its, you know, initial debut. It was just at first it was just kind of oh you know this is something new, something cool, and then it kind of lost its uh, popularity really. And and I think this is a good step in in the right direction for them. Oh, I I would definitely agree. Um, I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't, I didn't actually know they were doing a race uh, <laughs> until I saw the clip. Uh, being retweeted throughout Twitter, and I was just just amazed. You know, Formula E has had this, though, during its entire existence with excellent racing, excellent finishes, and such like that. And ever since its inception, you know, that first race, you had Nick Heinfeld and I believe it was uh, Prost's son, uh, Nicholas Prost, I believe it was. Yep. They had that large crash, and you Guess know, who ended up winning that race, by the way? I cannot remember, actually. Lucas Degrassi, ironically. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it, all comes full, it all comes full circle, man. So, yeah, Lucas Degrassi seems to be involved in a lot of great finishes with Formula E. I just think that, you know, they got some, they got some potential with this series. I, I think the main reason why it hasn't taken off, uh, maybe because it's electric and everybody's kind of iffy with that, but... You know, maybe it's the sporting body not doing their part to promote it. You know, it's you know there are rumors out there that it's just a test bed to see whenever F1 goes to electric power, fully electric power. So I don't know. I I personally love the series, but I just I don't know when it's on. I you know I'm kind of in the agreement with Parker Kligerman about how they handled things. It really wasn't a racer series. It was more of a Oh, here's some Instagram influencers uh, here to talk about the event and drum up some hype. But you know, you're not really targeting that target demographic of racers. Yeah, and especially, I mean, coming from like me as a primarily NASCAR fan, I mean, 
going back to what you said about the electric aspect, I think it's cool, especially looking at this clip. This is the first time I've actually seen a um, actual racing from Formula E. So when I go to a racetrack, you know, it's about the sights and the smell and, and, and the sounds. And with electric, you kind of get shying away from that. But when you when I'm looking at this broadcast here of this exciting last lap, I mean, it's it's a motorsport. There's no denying it. It looks like something that I think a traditional motorsports fan could, you know, totally get hooked on, and especially with a close finish like that. And you can see, you know, obviously on the left side of the broadcast with all the energy percentages, I mean, it's it's just like a fuel mileage race. So, I mean, it's it's really cool to be able to look at that and, and see what this is and, and what it's got the potential to be. So, And it's really evolved. I mean, the Gen 1 car, they couldn't even run a full race on it. They'd have to switch cars mid-race. And, and now they can actually make a full race. And actually, you could even go over the specified amount of energy. You'd get disqualified. But you can well and beyond finish a full race, which is a big step for them and I think really if you, if you think about this in the grand scheme of things look at look at any form of technology that's been introduced to anybody ever initially you're probably not going to have many takers on it it's probably going to be eh, okay you know it's different but mm-hmm. a, as time goes on it becomes more and more popular look at the smartphone for instance I mean the first oh, yeah. iPhone was introduced was it 07 08 07 Oh seven, yeah, and it took a couple years, and then you know became one of the, the biggest brands Apple did, so I I think yeah there's there's a lot of potential for them, and and also there's other series that are associated with it like the Jaguar, electric, I think it's vehicle series, uh, I'm not really sure what it's called I think it's the iPace series Catherine Leg one for Bobby Rahal's team Bobby Rahal owns a team and there's some big owners here they have. They have Andretti, that's in Formula E. They have Dragon they, Racing, too, I They believe. have Dragon Racing with Jay. They have an, an Audi support team, or factory team. They have a Porsche factory team. They have Venturi, which is part-owned by Leonardo DiCaprio. So there's no shortage of star power there. It's just, the way it's marketed is poor very poor well and they and and like you said star power they've had big drivers in it too i mean not not necessarily like world champions but they've had nelson pk jr they've had uh sebastian sebastian won the 24 hours of lamar i believe so i mean like there's some solid drivers in the series and nelson pk was their first champion right so yeah they just i love what formula e does but they need to do more of it (laughs) right yeah (laughs) Not wrong. Speed weeks, and I think that's what—I mean—that's what everybody wants to talk about. I think that's what everybody came here to listen to us talk about. I'm not gonna lie. Before Sunday rolled around, I was like, "Man, I'm prepared to be disappointed." Because looking at the whole week leading up to the Daytona 500, it was less less than exciting, I would say, if you're looking at speed weeks as a whole. And the 500 was was pleasantly surprising uh the duels man those are disappointing i ran at night and i i think they need to get back to running those during the day i know they moved them to the nighttime to try to lure in more viewers because that's when everybody's gonna be more available in the evening but i think it takes away from from the racing i don't think those cars race with that package as well 
in the nighttime, and it also doesn't make sense to race during the nighttime because you, for most of the 500, you're not going to be racing during the nighttime. The only I think the only reason we were finished under the lights is because we had so many red flags late in the 500. I'll disagree with you on that. It's because they've been pushing the start time further and further back. This year's 500 didn't start till almost three, almost 3 p.m. In right. years past, it starts at one. So it's it's part. Yeah, there were there were some pretty long red. Those two red flags there at the end definitely caused it. But uh, no, it's more of NASCAR wanting to shift to a later audience. But, I will. I will say though. Um... I don't think the race would have necessarily been under the lights as long without those long red flags. Oh, no. No. So, we went to the duels. We kind of started talking about the 500. Let's kind of bring back to Friday night's fun, spectacular race known as the NASCAR Gander Outdoor Truck Series race. Oh, man. So... Bobby, I haven't heard from you. What is what was your thoughts of this race? Um, it was it was really special in uh, one one little particular segment that it now holds the record for least amount of trucks running at a finish of a single race with nine. Well, I will say this, and this isn't really me picking the entire race apart. There's just only one thing that really stood out when I was watching it. Now, sure, there was, I mean, the crashes were absolutely insane, like like you just mentioned. I mean, that's, it's crazy to have that few vehicles running at the end of the race, and that's definitely not something that we should always aim to do. A lot of people do like to see the wrecking. There's some viewers out there that just like seeing crashes, and I don't personally understand that you're not watching racing. I mean, just go turn on Demolition Derby, and you're good to go. There's one guy in particular that I was really rooting out for, and it's one of those guys that you usually look at, and you don't, you don't think they're going to do good, but you just do it anyways. And that was Spencer Boyd. And I was surprised to see that he was able to survive and keep it going throughout the entire thing. Me being from the St. Louis area, and he's from St. Louis. He grew up and started his racing career behind the wheel of a Margay cart. And I just thought it was pretty cool to see him survive and outlast the thing. But as far as, you know, the racing went, you know, I mean, with all the crashing and stuff like that, it wasn't something I think was super, you know, something to be proud of. I will say, and and John John and I butted heads about this. I mean, in, in the in the group chat and uh, even here. I mean, we were butting heads about it before before we went live. I, and he said it was a fantastic race, one of the best of speed weeks. And I said, I don't know, I wasn't a fan. I, it, there was some really good action. Like there was a lot of good racing, but you can't look away from the fact that there was a ton of wrecks. And I think that's what takes away from it when when you can't make more than five laps without having a wreck, it, it kind of takes away from the re the whole race because you just wipe out three quarters of your field because you look like a bunch of 16-year-olds that just got your license, you know? But then again, I mean, it's one of those things. I mean, everybody wants to win at Daytona. I mean, everyone wants to win, period, but everyone wants to win at Daytona. And when you, you know, especially looking at the truck series, I mean, I don't want to call them inexperienced, but in a, you know, comparison to your cup and Xfinity drivers, you know, everyone, you know, you know, you've got the chance and you're going to push really hard to do it. So, I mean, and mistakes happen. I mean, that's with any racing, you know, platform that you're going to be in and just, you know, that aspect of it. I mean, you can't really avoid that. Uh, the 54 cut a tire and then her vehicle or Natalie's vehicle ended up catching fire 
Um, it was a mess. She got thrown over the pit wall. Uh, it's. I mean, oh, just come on. And she, then she this... weighs like two pounds. But then how can you not also mention in that situation, real briefly, that safety guy with the fire extinguisher trying to long shot that? Oh yeah, that I mean. Oh, I saw that. He was from like the next pit stall down, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, I, I will say the look that he got from that crew chief was priceless. But that that was the first little incident on track. Then we went 13 laps. That was our longest green flag run of the night, surprisingly. And then we had the big one. Well, the first big one, I should say. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, which one? <laughs> <laughs> we only had like seven. Um, that, that was caused by Jordan Anderson. Just uh, went for a hole that didn't exist, and he took quite a lick. Uh, I'm glad that he was okay after that. I'm glad for the safety of all the vehicles. Most trucks were tore up after that, so You're that's crazy. You look, you look at the still image of him impacting the wall, and it, it to me it just reminds me almost exactly of Dale Earnhardt's impact. I mean, the three car Anderson was in the three truck. It was in turn four. It was uh, like a forty-five degree angle. I mean, it, it just it was kind of an eerie image to look at. Oh, absolutely, and it was not a. It was not a soft hit by any means. Yeah, even with safer barriers, that was a very hard hit. Yeah, and he, mm-hmm. he, the wind was knocked out of him for sure. Then we had a couple more laps. Then there was fluid on the track. I don't remember what happened with that caution. Forgive me. Uh, then we had another eight laps. And then uh, Corey Roper, uh, short track ace out of Texas. He was all over the racetrack. I'm just going to be nice about it. He was all over the racetrack. He ended up side-swiping, I believe, Crafton. Hit the inside wall, uh, similar to Miguel Paluto. Didn't fly up in the air, but hit the wall pretty hard. Uh, that took a while. Then we went back green for another six laps. Then KBM took each other out. I think Todd Gilliland was bumping Harrison Burton, and it didn't work. Didn't Todd Gilliland do some something like that to somebody in the ARCA race? He did it to Brandon McReynolds. That's he what did, I thought, yeah. He didn't learn his lesson, so... Yeah, see, that's the thing, man. You got these inexperienced, and, and it's, you know, they're 18. They're eligible for the truck series. You know, they're running for the championship. But it's it's kind of scary when you see, I just don't think NASCAR really polices people in terms of eligibility and, you know, are they really ready? Because Todd Gillen made the same move in the ARCA race. And he, like you said, he didn't really learn his lesson. And, you know, to me, if I see somebody make a move like that, that's that inexperience, and all they're out there to do is, is to learn, and they do something like that, you know, over aggression, that, that looks really bad, honestly. Like, that's kind of like, hey, you shouldn't, you probably shouldn't be out here right now. Yeah, exactly. I just, uh, then Timothy Peters and uh, Clay Greenfield got into an accident. Uh I can't remember exactly what happened with that. It, it was... Oh, that's when Greenfield drove through the trial grass with his hood pulled up. Oh, yeah, that was yeah, right another... afterwards. He couldn't see where he was going. See another that meme highlight. <laughs> that was that was actually really cool. I wonder if that was like the bird box challenge. I wonder if like his spotter was like, you know, spotting him to his stall because there's no way he could see. Oh, like no. if he would have found his stall on his own, that's amazing. Then we had our first green white checkered. Oh, yeah, Bobby Gerhardt got turned. Yeah, Bobby Gerhardt kept getting pushed by Austin Wayne Self to the point where he <laughs> he ended up hitting the wall. I mean, he was slammed on the brakes, couldn't get stopped. Yeah. Uh, see, see, to me, that and 
I know it's the end of the race, you're going for the win, but to me, that's just really stupid. I mean, you've got, what, nine trucks left? I mean, at that point, there would have been, like, 11 or 12. What's the point of, like, especially those smaller teams, you're going to get, a, you're basically guaranteed a top 10. A top 10 for that small of a team is huge. Oh, I know. Absolutely. And we're not talking a small cup team. We're talking a small truck team. Like, these guys aren't out here really making money. You know what I mean? So, to have a good day like that, that's huge. Yeah, and, they're most of the time they're just lucky to have made it to Daytona. Right. And yeah. a lot of these guys, I mean, uh, we still have starting park teams out there. Mm-hmm. Sadly, in 2019, we're still talking about starting park teams, but, you know, s- some of these teams are borderline starting park teams and uh, going out and junking their equipment. So, that led to the final restart with... Nine cars left. Uh, Austin Hill took the victory. Uh, every everybody's uh, new fan favorite Ross Chastain finished P three. As Bobby said, Spencer Boyd, which I was surprised about, got P four. That was uh, pretty impressive, honestly. And Angela Rush, uh, Derek Cope's daughter, or Amber Cope, uh, infamous for her twenty eleven New Hampshire shenanigans, finished P eighth in a. I- in a Joe Nemechek truck, a second highest finisher in truck series history for a female, only second to Jennifer Joe Cobb in 2011 at Daytona. I believe she's Derek Cope's niece. Oh, is it Derek Cope's niece? Well, I that... believe so. Yeah, I mean, same same difference. Apples to oranges, whatever. Related to Derek Cope. Yes, and like you said, those those sisters are known for for what you talked about. Uh, Harvick versus Amber Cope at New Hampshire. Like they've kind of proven that they're not necessarily the fastest on the track. They're not necessarily the most stable cars to pass or trucks in this situation. But uh, yeah, good for her. She got a top ten. That's pretty cool to see. Austin Hill won his first race. Hattori just won their third in a row. Uh. They won at their biggest stage at Daytona. Everybody was, I guess, upset that Austin Hill took that ride from Brett Moffitt, but Austin Hill was bringing sponsorship, and I guess everybody counted him out because Brett Moffitt was such a talent. I guess this kind of proves that maybe not so much. Maybe the car, the truck was pretty good. I think we'll really see when we go to Atlanta this weekend. I think we'll really see how much it was the truck and how well Brett Moffat does at GMS, which is still a really good truck. Uh, but people were outraged by this, but what it came down to was funding. I mean, HRE ba- barely made it through all of last year. I mean, there was a point in the year where they were about to close up shop. Brett Moffat won them a race, and they kept going. And Austin Hill had funding for a full se- I mean, think about this. You have the reigning truck series champion, that just won the championship for your team. The only reason that they would get rid of you is if you don't have the funding. And Austin Hill had the full funding. I mean, if you know, that's the only reason they would get rid of him. So, and then you know, Brett Moffat found a ride, and it, it all worked out. So, um, that was basically it for the truck race. Uh, that was our shenanigan-filled race uh, of the weekend. Uh, now we move over to the Xfinity series and. Yeah, it was it was a thing. It was a race. Uh, that was not a race. 
What, what was your opinion uh, about it there, uh, Mr. Buchanan? Boy. Well, I, I think it's safe to say the bumper extension that they added uh, to those cars that, that we, we've seen in the Cup Series the last couple of years, I don't think that helped. But I, I think it's also, I think Denny Hamlin said it, and he got a lot of hate for it. Uh, they just it didn't seem like they wanted to race. I think I don't think raceability was really a problem. But another Probably thing that you also got to take into account, you know, um, maybe they figured out something with this package that they haven't figured out yet. Because remember, when with the Gen Six, when they first brought that around. Remember Talladega Fall 2013, where it was a highline fest around the outside, single file, you know, 30 cars deep or whatever it was. It was and, like that for the for the first three races. The Daytona 500 was right, yeah. like that. Tal- it, Talladega one was that was yeah. They had a one. wreck late in the race, and that's what packed them up. And uh, July Daytona was a little different, I think. But I mean, regardless, when you it, to me, I think of it like the tandem. The tandem they could have done for a while, but they figured it out. I think that really they figured it out by accident, and then they realized it it could work. And then you know later into the COT we saw that's what the racing was. It was all tandems because they went from one or two guys trying it and it would work, and then it was the pack plus the tandems, and then it was all tandems. And then NASCAR's like, all right, we don't like this, and then they changed <laughs> the package. Yeah. So, well, part, I mean, part of the reason they changed that package and. And it, it does make sense what caused Larson's wreck in 2013. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's fair. That's understandable. But, I mean, but look at that package, okay? It took them a while to figure that out. I think if they figure out, hey, you know, top lane with this car, you know, that's if we got so many cars around the top, you know, maybe that's the fastest way to go. Keep your momentum up, you know? And I think it's definitely harder to make moves if you're going from top to bottom with no help than it is bottom to top. I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but I think with this car, I think that's that's what what you're looking at cuz I mean, we saw guys pull out a line and and you know, yeah, guys were content to sit on that outside line, but it it had a, the raceability didn't seem very good with that package and and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe guys just were content to sit and and that's what it was, but uh, not point. exciting at all. Well, another point that was made, which Brian Keselowski, of course, he's the crew chief uh, for one of Carl Long's cars for M- MBM Motorsports. Uh, he pointed the blame at the new body because last year when we came to Daytona, it was the steel body still. It wasn't mandatory for the composite body to be- go on super speedways. Well, this year... It's now mandatory for composite bodies, and he he mentioned that the composite body was not as easy to manipulate, which, which makes sense. Which could have led to that, but I think it was just a combination of of everything. Yeah. I mean, the only highlight of the two highlights of the race were uh, Ray Black Jr. getting spun off or down the back stretch. And then Brad Keselowski re- 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 revitalizing the uh, convertible series. <laughs> uh, at Daytona, I didn't know I wanted it until some Saturday, but I do want it now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
I think one I think one takeaway and it is a really cool takeaway from that Xfinity race was getting to see Jeffrey Earnhardt in a black car lead laps at Daytona. I mean, Earnhardt in a black car at Daytona leading laps. What what's I mean, if you're looking at, you know, especially the old-timer NASCAR fans, I think they'd appreciate that a lot. Just, you know, even even if it was a good car and even if you know, he was put in that scenario just from where he started. I mean, it was it was cool. It was definitely cool to see. I think it was great for the sport, you know, to have an Earnhardt back out front at Daytona. Oh, it's just one of those little emotional things, you know, just kind of very similar as we're going to get to at the Cup Series race to have those little uh, moments that, you know, mean something very similar to like the J.D. Gibbs situation with their performance in the Cup Series race. Uh, stage two... Uh, Ross Chastain ended up uh, making a move, putting himself out front, front, and uh, won another stage. Which just, you know, why does this guy do not have a full time ride? Why, right. Why doesn't he have a sponsor backing him up? Like it, it just screams. Come on, it, there's a return on investment there. Yeah, just, he finished. He he almost finished top ten in every uh, race at Daytona. Yeah, finished I think, third, 13th. I think, yeah, 13th in the Xfinity race, right? And 10th in the Cup race. Right, yeah. So this this dude, in, in mostly underfunded equipment, almost finished top 10 in every single Daytona race that paid Speaks points. Volumes. Oh, finished yeah. every lap, too. Finished is, every lap. Which is pretty impressive considering the shenanigans of the truck race and the shenanigans of the Cup race with 10 to go. Some people will say it's luck, but, I mean, the results show, especially if you look at what he did last year with Ganassi. I mean, that's a limited – I mean, three. he had three races with them. It's like, show us what you got. I mean, that's very limited opportunities there. And he, almost, he, he did something with it. He won a race and showed that he belonged to be there. Hold my watermelon. He, <laughs> he almost won Darlington, the toughest track on the circuit in race one, but – you know, thank, got, thank Kevin Harvick. Yeah, thank Kevin Harvick for that. So that was basic. Oh, well, we've kind of forgot about the winner. Michael Annette snapped a 229 race winless streak to uh, get his first win in the Xfinity Series. Yeah. With Travis Mack as a crew chief as well. Um, you know, I've always been a critic of Michael, but uh, I'm really a fan now. I think right. that he's going to turn it around, honestly, well, this year. Well, like him or not, I mean, this was a big moment for him, you know, being able to, to win his first Xfinity race. And I think, you know, all all the critics, I think that kind of, even though it's a plate race, I think it kind of quieted them a little bit, just seeing, hey, you know, he can win a race. And uh, that's big because you're in top-notch equipment and, I think he kind of even realized, like, hey, this is uh, this is pretty cool. A long time coming, you know, long overdue, but it, he did, he got the job done. That's all that matters. Exactly, exactly. But that was basically it for the uh, Xfinity race, and our final race of the weekend, which I'm gonna say right now was my most pleasantly surprised race of the weekend. It was the best race of the weekend. Was really. the Daytona 500. Definitely. Uh, going into the weekend, like you said earlier in the podcast, uh, we I didn't expect much. Not a lot to look forward to, no. 
Yeah, it, it was basically have fun watching, you know, the Mile High Line. Or a wreck fest. Yeah, it, it was going to be no in-between, but you know, from the drop of the green flag, they were racing side by side. I mean, there were parts where they were single file. Right. But it was fantastic. It looked well, like how Daytona should be. Oh, I completely agree. It reminded me a lot, you know, in terms of side-by-side racing of the 2016 race. Yep. Well, I mean, at least it wasn't 2018 where, you you know, we wadded up a quarter of the field at the end of stage one, you know? it, would, it Love it or hate it, there, there was a lot of wrecks at the end. A lot of cars didn't finish the race. But it was all at the end of the race. It was when it was go time. It was when you were supposed to race. When it was all on the line. Last year it was, man, they were they were wrecking for stage points. There were points where they weren't even wrecking for stage points. They were just wrecking. So, uh, you know, I mean, they cleaned it up this year and they put on a really good show. Especially, you know, that late into the race, you gotta make the move if you want to put yourself in contention to finish high in the Daytona 500. So. And like you said, Bobby, uh, very cool to see Denny Hamlin. I, you know, a lot, Denny Hamlin gets a lot of critics. I think mainly because of what, what's happened on track with uh, Chase Elliott. You know, mm-hmm. over the past couple years, I mean, that's obviously you rough up one of the most popular drivers in the sport. Probably not going to get a lot of love for that one. But regardless, it's cool to see. You know, somebody re- really, I think, is one of the best drivers to not win a Cup championship. I think we can say that now. He's Just very be- skilled, yes. Right, yeah. Two two Daytona 500s. He's won the Southern 500. Uh, <laughs> has not quite won the Brickyard yet. Has he won a Coke 600? Uh, I don't believe so. Mm-hmm. Don't quote me. He's won a lot of races, though. And he's been in the championship four before, and uh, maybe this year's his year. But it was really big for that team, you know, kind of not necessarily putting the passing of J.D. Gibbs behind them, but basically saying, hey, you know, we can cope with the pressure. We can still race with it. Because J.D. Gibbs, I mean, Joe Gibbs' name is on, is on the banner, but J.D. Gibbs was a big part of that team. And to to see that they can go out there and still run really well, you know, even without him there, it, it kind of says a lot about that organization. Yeah, not even executively, but a lot of the drivers, and you could hear it through their interviews during the pre-race and post-race, how much that JD meant to them personally. And you could even, there was a clip that stood out to me from the uh, the media center when they had, they sat down with Kyle, Joey, and Eric Jones, and they just kind of threw it, you know, threw it at them about JD. And even Joey, you know, said, I mean, coming from Gibbs and then into his time at Penske, saying, you know, I can step away from my alliance and my connection with Penske to just really point out how awesome it is for you guys to have finished one, two, three in the race. And from some guy like Logano that's, you know, sitting next to across the table from Kyle Busch, who they've obviously had issues from before, and to have that level of respect, it speaks a lot, a lot of volumes for, you know, how important J.D. Gibbs was for not just the current, you know, Joe Gibbs drivers, but for the entire organization of NASCAR. Yeah, it does say a lot because, um, especially for Logano, because his his departure from Joe Gibbs – wasn't necessarily a pretty one. There was a lot of rumors of, you know, kind of the stuff that was going on there. Uh, it kind of just really seemed like Logano wasn't at home at Gibbs, almost as as how uh, Daniel Suarez was. 
mm-hmm. when, when he was at Gibbs and now has since left to go to Stuart Haas. Uh, but but it's still, like you said, cool cool to see people paying tribute. It's, and you think about it, J.D. Gibbs has really um, f- found a lot of talent, has brought up a lot of talent in NASCAR. You know, not something that's really been documented a whole lot, but he's really been a, a big part of a lot of people's careers. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it was sad to hear about JD's passing. Uh, I always, you know, whenever it was first announced that he would be stepping away from the team, I always, you know, kind of questioned what was going on behind the scenes. It was kind of very secretive, very hush hush. So, you know, it, it's it's unfortunate that uh, that you know JD passed, but. You know, I hope it does bring some light into, you know, what football injuries can do to you. Right. And I was very impressed with with uh, Coach Gibbs's composure during the race, during that um, commemorative lap where they paid tribute to J.D. Gibbs. I mean, even after the race, very composed. I mean, very professional. It kind of says a lot about, you know, his character. Obviously, being very respectful of his son, but. Still shows that you know they were there for business. They were there to win that race, and and they executed perfectly. Then in between pit stops, we or right as they were about to pit, uh, they were about to lap the field. The first pack was, which was kind of crazy to see. The Casey Mears and the twenty seven and Parker Kligerman had some type of scuffle. It was off camera. Our camera. It was not really shown during the race what happened. Casey said that it was Parker's fault. Parker said it was Casey's fault. Who knows? think in 2019 we'd be able to see what happens at all times yeah thanks fox now i'm just gonna blame that on all sports well it goes back to fox and their production crew which they've they've seen a lot of scrutiny the last couple years and you know it's been very public that people have voiced their opinion about how they feel about fox and the fact that they out of all their cameras and i don't know how many cameras they had there i mean if i really wanted to i guess i could find out how many cameras that they had for that the production of that race but the the fact they don't have one camera on turn 1 when that wreck happens yeah it's at the back of the field with you know two cars or whatever but man that it I will say if that wreck would have happened you know continued on a couple of seconds later there's a whole pack of cars coming at them mm-hmm. because this is in the middle of you know you got guys that pitted you know, to, to play the strategy game, to cycle forward when you get the stage yell, then you got the guys that are just playing it out and waiting. They're all in this pack right behind Casey Mears and Parker Clearman. I mean, that could have been a really bad incident if they would have ha- did that in front of the whole field. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, this has been something that I've been kind of pushing for. I wish NASCAR would do. I know the cost is astronomical, but... I truly and honestly believe that every car should at least have a roof camera. If not an onboard, every car should have a onboard camera of some sort. So similar to F1, so that if something happens, we're not, we're not all scrambling like, oh, well, it kind of looks like this. We can go to the onboard camera and see, well, that's what happened. Right. Not necessarily for broadcast purposes too, but they're always wanting to advance safety in the sport. And you can learn a lot from, the onboard technology, not necessarily just the cameras, but all sorts of telemetry. Yeah, and they went to the system where everybody can see everybody's telemetry, so it's not like it's a leap and bound, mm-hmm. per se, with technology. 
But that's that's a good point though. Say that was an was a wreck that I hate to say it. Say it was a wreck where somebody got hurt. All right. You have no video footage of it. So you have no I mean you've got the telemetry, but the visual aid, the visual aspect of it, it, it plays a really big factor into an, an investigation of a wreck, whether it's a NASCAR wreck where they're looking to make safety gains or whether it's a a, a criminal investigation. You know what I mean? Like it, this even goes to civil cases. You know what I mean? Like visual aids are very helpful. Yeah. And you can learn a lot from looking at the wrecked car, but it only tells you up to a certain point with some amount of certainty. When you actually visually can see it, then that's when it gets pushed over and, oh, you know exactly this is what happened. Let's NBC it. Yeah. Well, with the onboard camera, that would increase the fan accessibility, and it would give something that's truly only used in, say, Formula One, you know, in a major motorsport in America where... You're getting an angle from every car, so it's not like you're going to miss any action, so it kind of plays off that. But then we start stage three, had a 30-lap run. We were coming in for pit stops. It was going to be the final pit stops here, first round. Uh, Cody Ware, uh, I, I, there were some miscommunications. It seemed like Ricky Stenthouse basically ghost-pitted, did not tell anybody he was pitting, except for uh, giving some cryptic sim signals. Well, everybody pitted off turn four. Cody Ware didn't see it. He ran to the back of his teammate, a BJ McLeod. They spun into Tyler Reddick, which ramped off a of Jimmy Johnson, which, thank God that happened where it did, not closer to the pit wall, where he could have gone over the pit wall and had a little accident on pit road, uh, which brought out the caution. Very scary, because th those guys are laying out for for their stops. You know, those crew guys are... are... You know, they're not over the wall yet, but you got guys up on the wall. So if, even if it's not a car impacting that pit wall, a piece of debris, a tire comes loose. It's a, it's a, it's a flying object then that they all have to dodge. So yeah. it's very fortunate that, that, like you said, where it happened, where it did. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was, it was kind of scary. So glad it happened where it did. So, again, uh, then from here on out, we don't have a run more than 10 laps. I didn't actually realize this. Uh, so we get another seven-lap run. There was debris in turn three. I can't remember exactly what happened. Uh, you were livid by this, by the way. I remember this because you, <laughs> you got very upset about this, <laughs> that, they, that they threw a debris caution. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, but after I saw it, it was an actual large piece of debris. So yeah. I, I mean, like, they needed to throw the yellow in that situation. Yeah, exactly. So four laps went by. Then Kyle Larson, who was kind of having a mediocre day, uh, blew a tire going into three. Didn't hit anything, Man, did he save that vehicle? I mean, he didn't. I mean, you can only save a vehicle so much. But for going at the speeds that you're going into turn three like that and to do what he did, I mean, I'm always impressed when, and I, it sounds weird to say it like this, but I mean, I think we all can agree. When he does crash, he crashes very gracefully. Yeah. Yes. Yes, he does. I mean, the way that that thing started crabbing back and forth when, when the tire blew, it looked like he was going to point for the wall. It looked like he was going to overcorrect, you know, into the whole field. It it starts to point to the infield, and he gasses. I mean, the throttle 
controls, you know, I, I can't even explain it, man. I don't think he could even explain it. Like, the car control this dude has is incredible. He kept it down on the apron for the most part. I think he tore it up a little bit for the transition to the apron, you know, because his body work hangs so low. But regardless, incredible job to basically save that race car. So, 42 car has his has his ordeal. We go back green, another three-lap three run, and then Keselowski blows a left rear tire. He just, he was not a factor all day. Everybody Surprisingly. Predict- yeah, everybody Very surprisingly. Predicted. I picked him. Yeah, he'd be up there. <laughs> I picked him, and he he still, yeah, I mean, wasn't a factor. And uh, I think the odds had him winning it. Like, he had the best odds to win, and he was not a factor all day. Yeah, blew a tire, ended up getting stalled, lost a lap in the process. And it was just, it didn't look good for him. But it's okay, it all worked out. Well, then we got restarted again. Uh, we only went one lap, and then the big one happened. Uh, Paul Menard turned Matt DiBenedetto in front of the entire field. In turn three, which, you know, off topic here, but is it me or has almost every single big one at Daytona in re- recent memory happened going into turn three or in turn three? I was thinking uh, the exact during, same during thing. During the Gen 6 era, that is. Uh, 2017, July... There was one entering turn one, but it was basically the same deal. But yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, you think the July race ba- last year? The July uh, race when stage one end of last year when uh, Stenhouse made a stupid block and they wadded up like half the field coming to the end of the stage. Yeah, that that was entering turn three. I mean, you're right. Uh, that's that was that's been the trouble spot. Yeah, the Gen Six big one back in 2013 when Almarola or 2015 when Almarola won the July race. 2014. 2014. My apologies. Yes. Yeah, that one also happened going into. That was a bizarre wreck, though. That was a very bizarre wreck, but it still happened at the almost <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Same exact same exact type of thing too. I mean, the, the logic of it makes sense to me at least in the fact that you know that's you don't want to make a a move going, you know into one and two with the possibility of you still having half a racetrack to to do that i mean it just it makes more sense to me that people get more antsy and nuts when it's the last two turns of the racetrack so it would make sense that that'd be a more problem spot well my theory is is that it's the farthest it's a far away from the spotters so kind of clearing somebody is kind of difficult there so that mm-hmm. that would be my only guess as to why it happens in turn three it seems like has some well has and and Maintaining your momentum is so big with plate racing, you know, and w- with how it was, it wasn't necessarily gridlocked, but the t- how the two lanes were, maintaining your momentum was so important. So if you got a run on the on the guy in front of you, you definitely wanted to push him if you could. And Paul Menard bumped him going into turn three, kind of bumped him in the wrong spot. And as you're transitioning from the straightaway to the turn, so you got the change in banking. And it just unsettled the car and, and turned him. And it sucked for De Benedetto, man, because he was having a great race. Good to see him pick up a, a decent ride. You know, I hope he, he hope he gets to do something with that this year. And a lot of new fans. Oh yeah, definitely. So then we we clean up that. We have a red, uh, of course, with that. We got finally get that cleaned up. We're getting back ready to go to green with five laps to go. And of course, 
Everybody's super speedway sweetheart. Ricky Stenhouse Jr. went for a gap that was never there and wrecked Larson and wrecked up another four or five cars in the process. Wrecked, wrecked Larson, Chase Elliott, Alex Bowman, Kevin Harvick, Ty Dillon, and Brad Keselowski. I think it's worth pointing out that what happened in that wreck somewhat happened to Paul Monard and Jimmy Johnson in the clash. Because remember, when Jimmy side-drafted Paul, it kind of pulled the 21 car to Johnson's right front corner a little bit. And you could see Kyle Larson, you know, his car moved kind of the same way almost when, when Stenhouse went for that move. So very bizarre how side-drafting somebody actually pulls them into you. But I will say, though, from at least replay, there wasn't that much gap either way, yeah. even with the movement. But I will say, in that wreck, Ryan Priest got lucky drivers. He, yeah, he, big time. He, he got very lucky, splitting the, splitting the gap there. The onboard, he's even grabbing gears, going from the banking to the apron, back up to the banking. Like It was insane. Like Usually you see guys grabbing gears like that, they spin, and he... he Maintained control of it. It was pretty impressive. Exactly. And then we have another <laughs> we have another restart with two laps to go in regulation. Everybody thinks it's finally over. No, it wasn't. Uh, Clint Boyer misjudged misjudged his line there with uh, Michael McDowell. Turned himself in front of the field. It, it was not the most pleasant of wrecks. Uh, he even admitted fault to it that prompted another red flag at this point there were about 14 cars on the lead lap about three of which were left without damage uh and about 18 cars running in total so after that happened we had our green white checkered uh, restart denny hamlin pretty pretty easily walked away with it and won the race uh, for joe gibbs racing now, I will say it's worth pointing out. There was a lot of swapping between second and third and fourth those last two laps. And I understand, you know, if you think you got the best car out of the, that group, you definitely want to put yourself in front of them to put, your, put yourself in a position to, you know, pass the leader. But I think you give yourself a better chance at winning the race if you push the guy in front of you, you know, push second place, let him and the leader get side by side, and then you could potentially make it three wide. I mean... Uh, people didn't like him when he did this, but Kyle Busch in in the clash two years ago kind of got a little upset with Alex Bowman for not pushing him, which, I mean, Bowman was entitled to race him like anybody else is. and But at the end of the day, if Bowman would have pushed Kyle, they would have had a shot at beating Joey Logano in that right. race. So I think the same could have been said in, in, in this race, but hindsight 2020, you know, you never know. Yeah, I mean, just, it makes makes sense on paper, but I never really would expect Kyle and, and Joey to do that. No. No, no, not. You know, it it was, I think Joey was mad at a, a Ford, a fellow Ford driver, Michael McDowell, for not pushing him. And he even told him, I'm not getting paid to pay push you. I'm getting paid to go win the race, which, you know what? Good for him, because quite honestly, I'm kind of sick of this manufactured crap where they all work together. It's just, it ruins it. You know, they had to adapt out of necessity, but it ruins it. But uh, I'm looking here at the lap leaders. 
uh, Matt DiBenedetto. Who would have guessed going into the race that he would lead the most laps and William Byron would lead the second most laps? Byron's not a surprise just because he's in a Hendrick car and those cars were really fast. But yeah, DiBenedetto really turned some heads, you know, being at the back most of the time. It really speaks volumes that it's not, it's not necessarily as much on the driver if you're at the back of the field. It's, it's more on the car. Because when you run the, the, those smaller teams, you know, you could probably put Kyle Busch in an underfunded car. He's not going to run in the top 20. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's the truth. So I, think that's, I think that's Speed Weeks wrapped up. That, that, was, does, that does it for Speed Weeks, yeah. That does it for Speed Weeks. Next week we get to experience the papered spacer package and the high downforce drag package uh, at Atlanta. Uh, I'm going to be apprehensive to see how it is. Right. I mean, you got to have an optimistic a- attitude about it, obviously. I mean, I think most fans try to have that. But, man, I mean, if if it's if it doesn't live up to the hype, and I think it's fair to say it's either going to be amazing or it's going to be boring. But I, I would I think it's safe to say if it's if it not as exciting as people think it's going to be, then it's just going to be, you know, 306, was it 367 laps or 267 laps of them riding around at 180 miles an hour, basically. And I think this Speed Weeks is just kind of a good testament to the fans is like we, you know, we tooted the horn all, all episode thus far as, you know, mentioning how much of a bore we expected for the Daytona 500 and we were completely you know it was the opposite so I don't think we can really make that fair assessment until the checkered flag's thrown so right yeah I agree with that so uh there are two couple more topics to talk about uh here for this week uh let's talk about this uh we wrapped up the first two days of Formula One testing uh at Barcelona the first test for uh, Formula One. Uh, currently, Ferrari has been leading the way with Vettel and uh, Charles Leclerc, uh, both leading in terms of amount of laps ran and uh, fastest times. Uh, so the Ferraris are looking great. Uh, McLaren looks great as well with their lap time, but they also got a lot of laps in, which is something that's been has plagued McLaren uh, throughout its last few years. Uh, first year with Renault and uh, all the days with Honda. Uh, one surprise, though, is that Williams has yet to debut their car on track. Uh, a lot of people are up in arms and starting to question the direction of Claire Williams and the Williams team. Supposedly the car arrived late last night or late this morning, I should say, their time, and should be on track by the afternoon, if they're lucky. Uh, A lot of people are actually calling for Patty Lowe, who used to be the technical director of Mercedes, fired from Williams due to his competence uh, with running the team as of late. But yeah, there there was a lot of highlights uh, from this first day of testing. I'm not sure if anybody... Uh, got to see it or not. Mostly just some spin-offs and such like that. The only crazy thing really was uh, Ricardo was going down the main straight 
and his DRS flap flew off. He lost the flap for the DRS, and it flew off. He ended up spinning off at turn one there at Barcelona. Uh, did little damage to the car, got it in the gravel. You know, he was able to continue and actually drive it back once he got unstuck. That's scary. Yeah, that is scary. Uh, not sure if you all saw the replay, but it was very interesting to see it fly off. But I, I will say, though, the car looks better without that flap. Yeah. <laughs> out, out of... Out of all drivers, though, I think this year, if, you, if you're looking for somebody to see how they do, I think seeing how Daniel Ricciardo does with his new team, Renault, I think it's very um, very interesting because, you know, he, he left Red Bull, which was established as one of the powerhouse teams. Not, not, not up there with Mercedes, not up there with Ferrari quite, but on, on, the, on the downforce tracks, they were pretty solid. And... Uh, Taking what you were basically guaranteed with them, going to a completely unknown with Renault, and trying to see what you can build with them, it's a big risk. But I mean, remember all the way back was oh four oh five with uh, Fernando Alonso. Yes. Uh, what he was able to accomplish, or was it oh five oh six? Oh five oh six. Oh five oh six. Yes. What he was able to do with Renault. So I mean, that team has seen success. So it's it's it wouldn't be the first time. So um, it'd be I I I got my eyes on them this year. I think. Uh, I I definitely agree. Uh, the Renault move was definitely a big question mark. A lot of people pointed him to going toward towards Ferrari, uh, with uh, Fatel, uh, but. It just didn't end up working out. I think he was just sick of the engine failures and the random mechanical failures with these new hybrid cars. And it was it was, it was really sad to see because he was running great almost every single week until all oh, the MGUK failed, the engine failed, the gearbox failed. It was just it became sad to a point, and I could see why he wanted the change. The most interesting battle that uh that I'm looking forward to looking at this season will be Leclerc and Fatel. Uh, Sebastian uh, was at Red Bull, uh, was definitely put into the number one driver role there. Then Danny Rick got promoted up to uh, Red Bull. Their first year, he won three races, or Fatel, none, one. Here and after that, he left the team and went straight to Ferrari. So, you know, I don't see Fatel as a very strong you know, contender mentally in terms of car. I'm not saying that he's not talented. By all means, he's very talented. But uh, I just, I just don't see, or I don't see him having as much success as he had with uh, Kimi Raikkonen as his teammate. Who was it that took shots at him over the off? Was it was it was it somebody took shots at him over the off season? I believe. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but I, I believe it was one of the F one pundits. In my personal opinion, you don't come that close to a championship and lose it. It's not all team. At that point, it, it goes to driver. I mean, he had Germany won until you know it started drizzling rain and he should have came in but he didn't 
And I mean, you can't question somebody's livelihood. I mean, when you look at what they've accomplished over their career, I mean, four world championships. In a car that was a complete monopoly, similar to the Mercedes, though, now. And look at his teammates, then. He had Mark Webber. You know, I'm not taking anything away from Mark. Don't get me wrong. Mark was a very talented driver. But he wasn't, say, a Fatel. Right. Uh, such like that. You know, you have somebody like a Nico Rosberg in that situation who, you know, he went up against one of the best with Lewis Hamilton and, you know, went toe-to-toe with them and won out in 2016 and then retired because he just couldn't deal with the the mental drain that that Hamilton has. You know, Hamilton, it takes another, it just takes another level to deal with him. Well, I think it's also fair to say, I mean, he, I think we all know, I mean, Rosberg wasn't the number one driver there. I mean, it was Hamilton. And to deal with the, you know, F1 is all about team orders. You know, you don't really see that in other forms of motorsports. Well, I mean. Well, team orders is banned, but. Well, I mean, implied team orders, yes. Yeah, I mean, you still have it. There, there's preference of, of one driver over the next, but I think that's really, really cool that we saw Rosberg and, and Hamilton go toe to toe for it. Seeing two teammates, I mean, they, I mean, they even took each other out in some races. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. They took each other out in races. They butted heads. You know, it was hurting the team overall, but. They had such a monopoly on it. It was, it was, it was okay. But if they would have had something similar to that last year, God, if Ferrari would have won handily. So I think it's worth pointing out as we move on to some IndyCar news. On Tuesday, it was announced that IndyCars would have some new cockpit safety advancements, some new features. On their cars, which are to be, was it the 500 and beyond? Those cars yes. would have those uh, features on them, which is a good step in the direction, obviously, trying to limit the debris field from getting to the driver. Yeah. So let's give some background on this. So we had Rex of Jules Bianchi. Justin Wilson, there was one other, uh, Felipe Massa. Those yeah, James of... Hinchcliffe get hit in the head at, at the NDGP in 2014. Yeah, James Hinchcliffe, where drivers would be getting hit in the head with debris. You know, not something that was, you know, I guess there was always an inherent risk there, but it was not as prevalent as what it has been in, in recent years. So IndyCar uh, searched for a solution this said problem. You know, F1 went the route of the halo, which, you know, we could sit here all day and discuss, you know, safety versus, you know, aesthetic appeal and, you know, the risk of racing and it kind of dilutes that and the risk. And Anyway, let's, let's not debate that. So IndyCar, I know that initially they wanted to test an aero screen. I know Scott Dixon tested it along with Joseph Newgarden. I'm not sure what happened to that design. I think it's still on the drawing board because I don't. I, I think they, I think they said it would be as early as 2020 that we would see it. Yeah, 
I'm, I'm thinking that New Garden had some criticism to it, but was not completely opposed to it. But overall, it looked decently okay. It was it was integrated well within the car. Drivers said that, you know, there was some warping, but they said that there was nowhere near as much as what they would would have thought there would have been. It's very impressive because PPG was 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 the group that manufactured the aero screen. And, and like John said, with a, a screen like that where it bends and you've got the certain degree of angles where it wraps around the cockpit, mm-hmm. when you've got, whether it's under the lights and you've got the track lights or it's, you know, the natural sun, you've got light coming into the cockpit. Well, now it's coming through a screen, essentially a window, and, you know, the light is bending around the screen I think they did a fantastic job with it, honestly, considering how much that bends and, and there's not not really that much warping. No, but the one thing that I remember when Joseph uh, made remarks on that windscreen was just talking about the compatibility between his uh, helmet visor and the windscreen and that there was some sort of distortion through the two, which is, you know, kinks that could be worked out. But one of the things that he, you know, took out of it was, you know, that it's something that he could easily get used to if it was mandatory, you know, no problem. And I think that's the big thing is, I mean, like we just mentioned, you know, the aesthetic versus safety and, you know, if it's going to save, you know, injuries and save lives, then, you know, that's, that's obviously the number one priority for the drivers. Yeah. So, um, getting back to this little device, it actually has a name. Uh, it's called the advanced frontal protection. It's a little piece of titanium. It's about three inches long and about three quarters of an inch thick. And it, it's designed, as you said, to deflect some debris around. So it looks like they've been testing this, at least in the simulator and on track, on and off since the DW12 came out for a version of this. Um, like you said, they are going to implement it from Indianapolis on. Uh, it looks like IndyCar also gave an update on AeroScreen. So they were working with PPG Aerospace on on it. Uh, they ran tests at ISM and Indianapolis. They said they, they didn't report problems, but according to PPG and IndyCar, they feel like they need to work a lot more on it before they can actually implement it. Right, which that but, makes sense. That's a big... That's a big... Um, that's a that's a big change to make. So that's not something you just want to throw in there. And say, all right, let, you know, let's let's test this in a race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I, I believe this to be a stopgap until they actually figure out what's what's best, or if they can, or how they can get the windscreen to work. Because I think that's the route they're going to go. Right. And, and ultimately, think about how how Justin Wilson was hit uh, when he was was involved in his fatal crash at Pocono. The piece of debris that hit him really hit him in the top of the head. It looks like it just shot straight out of the sky and hit him. I mean, it, it, it wasn't necessarily a frontal or a side impact. It looked like it came from straight up and down. Mm-hmm. Obviously at a little bit of an angle, but it, Really, that's the only concern I th- I would think. If you have a windscreen or something like uh, the AFP, is 
coming from the top, if you have debris coming from the top of the car and, and it impacting the driver's helmet. Yeah, no, you have this this uh this AFP on the on the Indy car. I mean it definitely wouldn't have saved his life on that. Yeah, and you know, there there's not gonna be a you know, a solve all stopgap to this. You know, you could go the route of say a Red Bull X twenty ten, the concept car, where it's completely encased uh cockpit and such like that, but you kinda lose the aspect and the you know, the whole drawl of IndyCar racing with it being an open cockpit. Mm -hmm. So you know, do you want the open cockpit and you know, risk inherent rules? Do you go compromise? Do you not have anything at all? Which you know, more and more pundits are saying that that just can't happen, so and I don't think the drivers are really critics of safety, and I don't think they're really critics of being put into these situations. You know, they they know what they sign up for. Obviously, uh, you don't want to take unnecessary risks, but at at the end of the day, it's what they sign up for, and they realize it's open cockpits. You know, when you start in a cart and then you start racing, you know, say Formula Fords, and you start working your way up you make your way to the road to Indy or you race in Europe you're racing in formula cars this whole time they're all open cockpit so it's it's not like it's your first time racing something like that it's some it's a it's a risk that you've dealt with your whole career mm -hmm. so you know they're aware of it that they, they they're obviously okay with it if they continue to do it so it's it's just it's up to them yeah, exactly, exactly. And if they didn't want that risk of uh, open cockpit, open wheel, then they would go into something more along the lines of like a NASCAR or, you know. Sports cars or something. Yeah. Right. Sports cars, midgets, that, yeah, that type of stuff. This was a jam-packed uh, podcast for us, guys. Is You know, is there any final thoughts about the week or, you know, this upcoming week about what we could expect? We're on to Atlanta. We are on to Atlanta. Do we have any IMSA racing next week? No, the next race is Sebring. Which is, what, two weeks? I believe so. Okay, so... <laughs> so there's that coming up. Uh, IndyCar's coming up in a month. I know Less that. than a month. Less than a month, see? No, it's not. Yes, it is. I okay. don't know. <laughs> it's about three it looks like I, i've lost track of my days that's what happens when you become an adult people if you're <laughs> if you're an adult you understand where i'm coming from if you're not an adult just wait they're about three weeks out from sebring 12 hours and then the 1000 kilometer they're running the next True. wc the yeah wec which yeah i i don't know what they were thinking with <laughs> hey uh, to each their own yeah, and of course we have St. Pete coming up. Uh, F1 starting in Melbourne in about 30 days, about two weeks, or not two weeks, about four weeks. So, yeah, we're about ready. You know, we're starting the ske schedule and such like that. But, you know, here in a couple of weeks, we're going to have four and five series going at the same time. Oh, yeah. It's all exciting. I want to thank john and bobby for joining me fellas it's great having you it's, it's great to uh have some co-hosts as we move forward with the show yes thank you zach for uh bringing us on here it's always a pleasure 
Yeah, I've uh, had th- a really good time. Yeah, it's 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 a blast. Thank you. And uh, I think we we should we should plug our personal accounts. John, Twitter, Instagram, anything you want to promote before we sign off. All right, so let me let me think off the top of my head. So uh, I do have a gaming channel. Uh, it's JP3 Gaming on YouTube, JP3 Gaming 56 on Twitch. Uh, I stream a bit of iRacing, a bit of Nintendo games, a bit of this, a bit of that, you know. Uh, basically anything that I like, <laughs> to put it best. Uh, you can find me uh, streaming at random points during the week. And as for Twitter... Uh, my personal handle is jspool, uh, with an E on the end, I-I-I. And you can find me tweeting about NASCAR, or retweeting about NASCAR, and not really posting any opinions about anything. <laughs> Bobby Krug, where can we find you? So you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. All of them are under ATA Network, uh, like I mentioned at the top of the hour kart racer so a lot of my content is focused around that so i'll be starting up the 2019 ignite series and doing some video production for margay racing so we're going to be going to coda this upcoming weekend so there'll be some videos from that so a lot of karting content on that channel then same thing with my instagram and my twitter so awesome if you want to find me on twitter or instagram it's at zbcannon4 Check check my uh my carding channel out on YouTube. It's uh, it's under my name Zach Buchanan, or check out my carding page on Facebook Zach Buchanan Racing. Fellas, a lot we had a lot to talk about this week, but we move on to Atlanta for the Cup Series, the Xfinity Series, and the Truck Series. Thank you everybody for tuning in. If you want to follow the podcast on Twitter, it's at the Pit Limiter. Make sure you follow us on Facebook as well, The Pit Limiter Podcast. And if you miss an episode, head over to our YouTube channel, The Pit Limiter Podcast, as well. Or listen to us live every Tuesday night or tonight, Wednesday night, 7 p.m. With that, thanks everybody for tuning in, and we'll see you next week on The Pit Limiter Podcast.